3: Slate Money is sponsored by Dropbox. Trusted by people in over 4 million businesses worldwide to keep their files safe, synced, and easy to share with anyone. Try Dropbox for Business free for 14 days at dropbox.com business. And by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you, with a free 30-day trial at TrySelfEmployed.com slash money. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click, and the interface is easy to use. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome
0: to the Off the Books edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. As you might have noticed, I am not Felix Salmon of (laughs) Fusion. I am Jordan Weissman, Slate's Moneybox columnist. Uh, Felix is off this week. He's somewhere, I believe, in the Scottish Isles undoubtedly enjoying some very nice scotch. But he will be back, have no fear. In the meantime, I am joined, as always, by data scientist Kathy O'Neill, blogger at mathbabe.org. Kathy, how you doing? Hey, Jordan. Good to see you. And uh, back to the show, we have one of our favorite guests, uh, Cardiff Garcia from the Financial Times. Hey, man. It's great to be back. Yeah. Uh, we love seeing your face on the show. Uh, the listeners love imagining
2: your face on the show. And <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think, by the way, if I'm not mistaken about today's show, this, this will be a little different from the last time in that I suspect that the three of us are going to disagree on a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's not really exciting. Exciting. It's not just going to
0: be a love fest. So what are we going to be disagreeing about? Well, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about how the Cuban economy works on the ground. Uh, Cardiff just got back from a big reporting trip there. So we've talked about Cuba before, but we're excited to hear some firsthand perspective. We're also going to be talking about the big news in Washington right now, the big legislative fight over the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Is this trade deal a shadowy Give away to multinational corporations, or is it just a sensible way for American, you know, cattle farmers and financial firms to sell a little bit more abroad? But first, Kathy, let's talk about the biggest story in banking and, of course, white collar crime of the week.
1: Yeah. So let me just start off by saying I am exhausted. <laughs> I'm just I. What's a call when you can't even listen to bad news anymore? You're just it's beyond you. I think you're saturated. Saturated. Maybe super saturated. I'm what, super duper saturated. You're numb to it. <laughs> Jordan was suggesting we talk about the recent settlement with the big banks, and I my like my eyes glazed over. I was like, what? Which what? one? <laughs> Which one is it? Robo signing, mortgage <laughs> fraud, LIBOR interest rate manipulation. Oh wait, no, it's yet. Another category of historic settlement and historic fines for the big banks. And this time it's about currency manipulation. Yeah.
0: So, Kathy, tell us a little bit more. Who are the felons this week and what did they basically do?
1: So um, I have no idea because I'm exhausted. I've, I know that they're being <laughs> charged six, about $6 billion Okay. for like, manipulating the currency prices. So there were five banks in the five lineup. Five banks, yes. Um,
0: four of them had pled guilty to charges of manipulating currency. That would be Royal Bank of Scotland, J.P. Morgan, Barclays, and Citigroup. A uh, Fifth, uh, UBS actually got immunity for uh, its involvement in that little bit of skullduggery. However, it had to plead guilty to some old charges involving uh, manipulating the Libor benchmark because it violated the terms of its old plea deal. This is all partly notable because uh, it's the first time in decades that an American bank has pled guilty to any kind of a criminal charge. But Cardiff, just walk us through what basically happened here. Well, so, you know what,
1: before we go to what they actually did, like, yes, they pled guilty. Yeah. But number one, nobody went to jail. Yeah. Number two, they delayed the, the plea until they had already gotten the SEC to waive any, like, they were still allowed to do business as usual, Yeah, right?
0: They they aren't going to lose the ability to do business in any areas where they might be disqualified.
2: Uh, okay. as I think that the parent companies yeah. for the first time are are felons. They're yeah. the ones who pled guilty. I think that's the unprecedented that part That is, of, is exactly. true. Nobody's going to... Okay. I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you again. <laughs> <right, so laughs> no, um, it's good. I want to talk about that aspect
0: more <laughs> sure. later. But first, I do want to get through, Cardiff. What, Sure.
2: what went on here? So uh, I'll take you as far as I can, because actually the mechanics of this were a little bit hard to wrap my arms around. Um, but let's say, for example, that I'm an American company and I don't know, I want to import European parts or something, right? Well, to do that, I need to go to the foreign exchange market and I need to buy... Euros, right? Mm -hmm. So I call the trader at the bank. Okay, and I say I want to buy euros The way this usually works is that I'm gonna agree to buy it at what's called the fix That's just the price at which I'm gonna buy euros in exchange for my American dollars, right? Mm -hmm. That price is set at four o'clock Okay, and in between when I place the order and when that price is set the trader who takes my order at the bank All right has some time to mess with the price by colluding with traders at other banks. That's what they're accused of doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, The actual mechanics of how it works are a little bit complicated because they have to time this a certain way. But if you're the trader at the bank, okay, you have the incentive on the one hand to buy... My dollars for euros at the cheapest possible price and then to sell your own euros at a higher price Right and so that's where the manipulation comes in is that you're trying to mess with the price in the time between I place the order and when the price is set and when they're doing that Essentially what they're accused of doing is a couple of things, but one of them is Giving away to the traders at other banks what my order actually is which they're not supposed to do And they did this in these kind of secretive chat rooms, right? One of them was called the cartel and the mafia right Well, all this colorful stuff going on in the background it it was
0: pretty brazen there was one guy who was on record saying if you ain't cheating you ain't trying i mean they they... and
1: and the less competition the better which goes to to the next point i wanted to make which is the reason they could get away with this which eventually ended up i assume in businesses not getting the best price for their euros is that these were the go-to banks People, large businesses, had relationships with them and didn't have relationships with alternative banks. So they just continued to do business, and it, they weren't noticing it because it was it's like the big finance stuff. So it's just it's purely monopolistic power in that sense. So the
0: executives of the major banks have tried to play this off as sort of just an example of, uh, I think the way Bloomberg put it was a few bad apples. You know This is the work of individ- low-level individuals. You know One quote from uh, the uh, chief executive of uh, Barclays, for example, said, I share the frustration of shareholders and colleagues that some individuals have once more brought our company and industry into disrepute. Yeah. And Jamie Dimon said something similar. The, the lesson here is that the conduct of a small group of employees or of even a single employee can reflect badly on all of us. So I have a question. Is this something isolated? Is this just individual employees getting together and coming up with this big, long-running scheme that ran for, I think, five years or so? Or is this symptomatic
2: of something else in this market or in the banks themselves? I mean, mean, it probably is symptomatic in some sense, right? But there's multiple layers to it because it actually is kind of maddening that this kind of thing took place even after all of the LIBOR stuff was going on. And these guys were still in these chat rooms and still thought that they wouldn't get caught and still were saying explicitly, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, right? Um, That's one layer to it, but again, one of the reasons I have trouble getting my arms around this is that I went back and I read the original Bloomberg story that broke the news of what was happening, that broke the story, right? Yeah. Um, It was in Bloomberg a couple of years years ago, ago, Uh, 2013, I believe. And even in that piece, what it said was that it's true that this probably is breaking quite a few rules, but at the same time that the banks that are doing that are taking a certain amount of risk by doing it because while they're trying to manipulate the price, That can still go against them if another dealer decides to place a bet that goes in the other direction. And it even quotes, I think, an executive either at an asset management company or at at another company that uses the foreign exchange market saying, look, I get it, this might be happening, but it's hard to quantify how big the ripoff is, how much I'm getting ripped off. And in, in the meantime, it's still a pretty convenient market. And then there's sort of another aspect to this, which is unquantifiable but still frustrating, which is, well, look. We're supposed to have faith in our markets. And so this is something that at least threatens the integrity of the whole thing. And that might, as Kathy said, raise the price of doing business. My problem is I have trouble getting at exactly how it works. It's, so, it's all very ambiguous to me. I do want to say I'm not sure I care specifically about how big the ripoff
0: is in the end. Right. I'm not, I mean, in the end, it's an antitrust violation. Those are the rules that are meant to keep some sort of functioning market in place. And even if they're running a scheme that doesn't work very well, Right, I don't know if that makes it any better. Even if they're not making a giant killing off it, it's still they're still breaking the rules. They're colluding, and yeah. I mean, talk about intentionally breaking the law. I mean, maybe they thought there was some ambiguity, but they were calling themselves the cartel. Uh, Kathy, you clearly want to jump in. Yeah,
1: I just, yeah. I, I just kind of wanted to echo your statement, which is that plenty of people do, you know, rightly want to understand the impact of this kind of corruption. But at some level, the point is that these guys were doing something that was to their personal benefit, and they didn't give a shit. About the impact, they would have done it, presumably. they were ten times. As if it big. were ten times yeah. as big, because they were making money off of it, and that's the culture that we're seeing, and it's continuing to be true. And moreover, if going back to the actual punishment, which yeah. was a fine that they don't care about as either, and they didn't go to jail, and some of them lost their jobs, but they probably, for all we know, got other jobs. You know, there's really no incentive. There's no even process of the culture getting improving.
0: Right. So. There may be prosecutions. We don't know that. The Justice Department has told reporters that they are still investigating, that there may be charges brought against some individuals. We don't know who those individuals are. But... I I do share some of your frustrations with the punishment, not because the fine isn't big enough necessarily. As we said, it's hard to quantify exactly how big this ripoff was. But we've talked on the show before about how for a long time, the Justice Department simply refused to bring criminal prosecutions against major banks out of fear that they would collapse, essentially, if they did. They now have sort of lost that fear in that they've realized, okay, we can make them plead guilty to a crime and nothing bad will come of it if we don't actually force any typically criminal sanctions onto them, if we don't bar them from doing certain kinds of business, if we don't necessarily throw anyone in jail. So to me, this is still sort of a criminal prosecution in name only. I'm curious, Cardiff, if you feel the same way
2: about that or not. No, that sounds about right, actually. And to be clear, by the way, the the ambiguity, at least for me, is not in whether or not they broke the rules. I mean, that seems pretty clear. And they themselves were, were laughing about doing it as they were, in fact, doing it. The ambiguity to me is in how big the ripoff was. And the reason I think it matters is because... You want to figure out how to design a punishment that's commensurate with the crime, right? And I just mm-hmm. don't know any way of coming up with that if you don't actually understand where the impact was of what they were doing. So that's the, the question of whether or not this was big enough or small enough, I actually don't know because I don't know how to measure it. In terms of criminal prosecution, I mean, yeah, they, they're saying the banks are now felons, but nobody's going to jail, and it's not really going to disrupt how you do business. So where, you know, what's no, the fallout I mean, there? What does it mean? Okay, so
1: first of all, the felon thing. I mean... Just co- compare that to what it means for a, a, a person, a human to be a felon and how they yeah. can't get a job again. And going back to like, do we really want to quantify the impact? I would argue, you know, in order for people to actually be incentivized not to do this, to, for people to, be, to think to themselves, hey, I shouldn't collude with traitors at other institutions. It's not about how big the impact is. It's about whether the punishment has to at least make people not want to do it. It should, regardless. I mean, if it's a rule and it's about the integrity of the market, regardless of whether the entire United States crumbles or whether just a few clients get ripped off, you should, at the very least, have traders being like, "Not worth it." I. It's like not worth it.
0: I, I think that, or the banks. I think that looking forward, there's actually a, a pretty easy test of whether or not these fines have any deterrent effect, which is if we see another conspiracy. To fix prices in a market like there was with Libor, <laughs> like there was with Forex, <laughs> that continues running after this, it's going to be a pretty good sign that it turned. Fa- we, we already we have,
1: have, have that. that. This is it. I mean, because think about HSBC; they got in trouble, and then they got in trouble again for not, you know, keeping up their their side of the bargain with the uh, with the regulators. UBS, this is not, the, right? They're getting yeah. re-in trouble. Yeah. How many examples
2: of getting re-in trouble do we need? I just, I mean, it's like... Could be we're back here in 2017 with something else and we're going to look back to this podcast and be like, not big enough. <laughs> <That> was...
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, on I guess, one positive note, uh, and we have, I guess, we haven't disagreed much in the, on this topic. This is, we kind of we kind of lied early on about that. Uh, hopefully there'll be more <laughs> acrimony as we go forward in this podcast. But on one positive note, the SEC had to put out an opinion saying they were going to waive Uh, some of the punishments that would typically be associated with being convicted of a crime for these banks. And one commissioner, Kara Stein, did actually dissent and say, no, we shouldn't be waiving these punishments. Look at the recidivism rates for these banks. This is the fifth time some of them have been brought up. It's the seventh time for some of them. Anyway, so there is some awareness among at least a few regulators that maybe something else needs to be done. Enough, though, with the Forex market, with the, uh, with the sca- banking scandal du jour. Before we move on to Cuba, though, I want to talk to you a little bit about Dropbox for Business. Uh, It's one of our favorite sponsors. As Felix has told you many times before, the great thing about Dropbox for business is that all your employees already use Dropbox. It's not like you have to teach them some new technology. All you're doing is basically layering on a few tools that you yourself can use to manage it a little bit better and integrate it into your business. And everyone can keep working as they have before and will forevermore. It's got centralized administration. It's got all the space you need so you never have to worry about your storage. And it's got built-in visibility and control. And it's got ready integrations to third-party security and administration solutions such as SIEM, DLP, eDiscovery, and even more. And last but not least, it's got Dropbox's famously secure infrastructure. So try Dropbox for business free for 14 days at dropbox.com slash slate. Again, go to dropbox.com slash slate money to just get a better version of the software your employees are already using. All right. Cardiff. Yes. Uh, We've talked about Cuba before on the show, as I've mentioned, and uh, our longtime listeners are aware. However, you just came back from a lengthy reporting trip there to see what things look like on the ground. Yep. And
2: moreover I guess we should tell you, your aunt you're Cuban your yeah. your parents
0: are Cuban immigrants
2: and I'm, I'm Cuban American my parents were both born in Havana that's right they uh, came uh, before the revolution uh, so you wrote
0: a, a wonderful essay about your kind of feelings about the political debate about Cuba um, in the United States a few months back and uh, now you've been there for a while and kind of gotten a feel for what's going on now that we're on the verge of um, some sort of normalization of relationships are they ready for it? I mean what do you think that's going to bring
2: you know, it's, uh, it's, Cuba is a fascinating and complicated place. Um, the kind of progress that I think we've seen in the last few months is helpful. I think it's going to be a slow and gradual process. And let's keep in mind that the embargoes on travel and trade are still there. They've just been loosened. Yeah. And to the extent that the executive branch can make exemptions to it, It has. And it's clear that Obama wants to move as quickly as possible towards something that's more normal, opening embassies on each side. They're talking about that this very week. Yeah. Right. Um, I'll talk about my my own impressions of having been there. The first is that I was, I guess, startled to see the extent to which Cuba's dual currency system affects daily life there. So a bit of background on this, right? Um, Cuba has two currencies. Absolutely. One is the national peso and one is the convertible peso. And the convertible peso, as its name implies, is the kind of uh, currency that you can exchange for dollars, for euros, for other stronger foreign currencies. And it's set to the dollar roughly one-to-one, and there's a big surcharge each time you actually make the exchange, too, right? The national peso is much weaker, and it's about 24 national pesos to one convertible peso or to one U.S. dollar. So here's the deal. right? Cuban state workers right, are paid their salary in national pesos, in the weaker peso. When you make the full exchange, it comes out to about 20 to 25 bucks a month, and that's where it actually tops out. right? So not a whole lot of money. And so... What happens a lot of the time is that Cubans will have their state jobs because the state still controls the overwhelming majority of the economy, but then they'll have second jobs where they essentially try to access the parts of the Cuban economy, okay, that are done in the convertible pesos. So, things like restaurants, what are called um, casas particulares, which is essentially Cuban families, like where I stayed renting out a room in their house to tourists, to visitors, to foreigners. Mm -hmm. And let me just interject Um, here,
1: sorry. I read your essay uh, a couple of days ago. It's really nice. The essay you wrote before going recently. And, you know, I, I know very little about Cuba. But one thing that I was like, yeah, of course, there's lots of tourists
2: to Cuba, just yes. not yes. Americans. Yes, that's yes. exactly right. So so,
1: the, so how big is that tourist industry, actually? And who are they?
2: Right. So it's uh, close to three million people a year, but it's Canadians and Europeans uh, by and large. Yeah. So, by the way, and a quick aside here, this is why I get a little bit frustrated with the argument in favor of ending the embargo that goes like this. And by the way, I'm very much in favor of ending the embargo. But there's an argument that's often used that says, well, if Americans can travel there, then Cubans will have contact with democratic ideas. To which I want to respond, how stupid do you think Cubans are? Right. Do you think they're unaware of how things work in the rest of the world? That's just not the case. But, again, in terms of daily life in these two currencies, uh, it was fascinating to see because it creates all kinds of weird distortions, right? Cuba is a very unequal place. I'm not going to say it makes the U.S. look like an egalitarian paradise, but it's headed in that direction, right? Because the parts of uh, the Cuban economy and the Cubans that have access, direct access to the stronger currency. Right. Can live pretty well there now. Okay, And so everybody else is scrambling to get access to them. And so they take these second jobs. But it means that the incentive to do their actual day to day state jobs, because this is still a communist country, is very weak. Everybody's sort of on the take there. And then they take. So I met a lot of people, for instance, railroad workers. Okay, who took a second job fixing up like the big water storage tanks of the guy who runs the house that I stayed in. They get paid in the the stronger currency construction worker who has a second job as a driver and a security guard for a diplomat. Right. At the ice cream shop near where I stayed, there were two lines, one very, very long line for Cubans paying in the national peso. And then one very short line, if you're a foreigner, you can go right to the front and pay in the convertible peso, which is awful to see, right? And the other thing it does is it makes it very hard to know exactly how big or how strong the Cuban economy is. Because here's another thing. The state enterprises use a different exchange rate, okay, to the rest of the population, right? It's one-to-one for those two things, which means that importers are massively subsidized by the state. They have to be. It's why Cuba has such a big external deficit, right? And so it ends up happening that the books... Right, the national accounts are totally distorted in the same way that the average Cuban income is distorted because they all have, or a lot of Cubans have, second jobs. So, for instance, to give this a little bit of concreteness, the Cuban GDP per per capita is sometimes listed at around six thousand per year, six thousand U.S. dollars per year. If you actually take into account all right, the appropriate exchange rate that's available to the population—it's just hundreds of dollars a year—and the truth is somewhere in between, and nobody knows exactly where it is. So it's fascinating to wow, see that. Wow, that's really I'm... bad data. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. And it,
1: mean... and it's being kept political for the political reasons. They just don't acknowledge what the actual exchange rate is.
2: I, I think it's it's more of kind of an open secret. People know at this point that the state is essentially acting as a massive subsidy to these state-owned enterprises. That's that's what it is. It's a communist mm-hmm. country, and it you know the state essentially does what it wants. So, so when we talk about
0: how bad is Cuba? economy? How much damage has the embargo done to it? Where are they starting from now? The answer is we don't really know, in a sense. It's very difficult to say, other than it's not in great shape. We know generally it's got problems, but to actually measure precisely it's because they have this bizarre currency system. It's, yeah, it's
2: although I, I think I think the embargo has done some damage. Well, and
0: we know, s- we know yeah. it's done damage, yeah. just, to say with any sort of absolute certainty about, like, put a number on it. That's it seems- very
2: hard. And I will say this, though. If you do tourism the right way in Cuba, if you stay at these newly privatized restaurants or you stay at one of these mm-hmm. gasas particulares, then actually I think it can be an animating and invigorating force. And I was also surprised by how willingly people were speaking to not just a journalist, an American journalist, about their frustrations with the system they weren't i mean you read all this stuff about how you can't talk about fidel or raul and it's all very secretive you can't talk about the castros not actually true i mean the vast majority of cubans that i spoke with while i was there and again it wasn't just in these sectors they all had i think a very similar kind of thing they they didn't like the embargo. They thought it was time to end, but they also recognized that any meaningful change would have to come from their own domestic policy, from their own government. So I was in Cuba in 2008. I only spent a week there,
0: in, mostly in hotels and such. So I don't have nearly the perspective you do. But that was one thing that struck me when I did get time to actually sit down with actual Cubans, that they've not been brainwashed by any no. means. They are ba- is a highly educated and uh, a population that has a sense of what's going on. The second thing I thought was fascinating at the time was it was very, very evident that there was a big black market economy there. Yeah. Um, you know, I walked into a family's home, and the first thing I noticed were the kids were sitting down watching, I think, Pixar DVDs that had clearly <laughs> been pirated and were playing on a, I assume, like, Japanese-produced uh, DVD player. There, There is something going on below the surface that suggests these people might actually be very good capitalists, but I'm curious, did you see a lot of that while you were there? Was there a kind of thriving black market economy?
2: And what did, I mean... And, and
1: I would also add, like, who didn't have access to that.
2: Yeah. Right. Okay, so I here it might help to to give you one concrete example of the sort of idiosyncratic ways that the Cuban economy works and also how the recent changes are affecting it, right? So, one of the changes that was made in December by Obama is that telecoms companies now have an easier time offering their services in Cuba. Now, let's talk about internet access in Cuba, right? First of all, to access the internet outside of a place of work is prohibitively expensive. It's about ten bucks an hour for everybody, including for me. You know, you go to the hotels, that's what you pay. For the average Cuban that might as well be like ten thousand dollars an hour, right? So Cubans can get access to the Internet okay, at their place of work, but they're not supposed to access it for personal reasons. So the place where I was staying, for instance, was listed on Airbnb, but you can't book the place through Airbnb and you can't pay them through Airbnb the way you normally could. Okay? You have to pay in cash when you get there. You just use it as a way to contact them. But in order for them to email me, this was complicated, too, because I would send them an email Okay, And the daughter of the family would use her workplace email to receive the emails, but she thought it was too risky to send an email back. So she'd go to one of these Internet houses where it was really expensive, and she'd send the email really fast, as fast as she could, so that she wouldn't use up too much time because it was so expensive. So there's all these kind of hijinks, and it gives you a sense of how um, American companies will look at Cuba— Okay, and they'll see it as maybe a potential opportunity, but it's going to take a really long time because the infrastructure of things like this isn't well developed. And you still have a repressive government that still runs the media, that still censors the Internet. The state Internet company doesn't allow Internet service to be provided in the home. Right. What's it going to take for that to change? And so you have all this stuff going on. Some of it sort of feels quasi official and some of it is newly liberalized and actually official. And and so it all combines into this place that's, again, just a very complicated place, full of nuances, um, and at once full of both, I think, promise a sense in a lot of cases of desperation that maybe meaningful changes really won't happen because they've heard a lot of this before, um, but also a desire for improved relations and for um, increasing um, privatization and liberalization in other parts of the economy as well.
0: So, I think that is a uh, wonderful note on which to end our conversation about uh, Cuba. Uh, Before we move on to our third topic, however, uh, we have another note
1: from our sponsors, uh, Kathy. Hi. Uh, Listen, I'm going to talk to you guys about Intuit. Um, If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spend for work and what you spend on yourself. It also helps take the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, you know how much money to set aside for Uncle Sam and how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at TrySelfEmployed.com slash money.
0: So I think we're about to move on to our third topic.
1: Yeah, and I think it's time for a fight.
2: Uh, our listeners have been
0: waiting for a fight. Let's do a, this. Fight. <laughs> okay. So right now, one of the big controversies in Washington is over a massive trade deal you might have heard a little something about called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It is a potential trade agreement that would involve uh, countries along the Pacific Ocean, uh, as the name would suggest, including Vietnam, uh, Japan, Singapore, Brunei, New Zealand, Peru, Canada, Mexico, Chile, of course, the United States. And President Obama is very much in favor of making this a part of his legacy, and this seemed like a doable thing for his administration because he has the support of a number of conservatives and Republicans, especially in the Senate. But he forgot one thing. He has a yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's his own party to worry about. Exactly. The liberals at the Democratic Party, and also, I should say, some uh, Republicans in the House, more of the Tea Party wing, have decided they really, really don't like this deal even though we don't actually really know what's in it yet, uh, Kathy, can you talk a little bit? Yeah, well, about I mean, that? okay.
1: So, so two things. So first, it's just absolutely outrageous that we don't know what's in this deal. So we're going to have a conversation, and we're gonna we're gonna cherry pick the things that we hate about it or like about it. And I'll be the one who hates it. You'll be the one who likes it. But, but at that, the end of the day, we won't know if we're having a real conversation because. The situation is this: Is that outrageous? That, wait, is the trade deals are
0: always negotiated I mean, in secret because it's almost impossible for international for countries to do everything transparently because you have to deal with the politics of a dozen different nations at that point. I mean, how how could you negotiate a trade deal like this in anything other than secret? I think there's a spectrum
2: of secrecy. Right? Okay. I think one of, the, one of the big complaints about this one uh, is that they're not, for instance, communicating each step of the process as much as they would have in the past with like their congressional liaisons, that kind of thing. But I agree with this general point that when you have interest groups in all 12 of the countries who are negotiating this thing, you can't each time you present, for instance, uh, an opening salvo or an opening negotiating position, if somebody in another one of the countries sees that and starts complaining, and the politicians who were trying to negotiate that have to run away from it, and then you have 12 different countries and they're all doing it, I agree there, there has to be some some sense of secrecy there um, as it's happening. I, but, I think. okay,
1: I'm not saying that you can open up every little detail because everyone will Public fight scrutiny, over that. Yeah. But however, it's not as if it's consistent. I mean, one of the problems is that the corporations who are involved, who are heavily involved in writing the TPP, they have access to it because they're writing it. So we have on the one hand corporations with vested interests in how this trade deal goes down, who get to see it, and then you have the public who also has vested interest in how this deal goes down. We don't get to see it.
0: There is some asymmetric information here, or asymmetries, and who knows what. And the other and I thing agree is, that. like that's, that's the, the
1: other problem with with the secrecy thing is, like it'd be one thing if we had some level of trust that when we're told the public that this is a free trade deal, that this is actually about free trade. But my examples of things I really hate about the TPP have nothing to do with free trade. So th- that's, I think, the crux
0: of this issue, but. I want to step back. I think that the secrecy problem, the reason it's a problem, is isn't just about the fact that some of the worst things might not really be about trade as we classically think about it. The fact is that free trade deals in the past haven't delivered what they were necessarily promised. There's a growing consensus, for instance, among economists that trade with China really has decimated a certain parts of the middle class, that it might be a net good for the country in terms of GDP, but there are definitely parts of the country that were exposed to Chinese imports, that lost their factories, that were shipped overseas, and have never really recovered. And those workers were never helped the way they were promised. Um, And so there's sort of this, you know, even though this trade deal probably isn't going to ship a lot of jobs overseas, no matter, if it happens. Because, frankly, I think like the president has said, or like many people have said, the, the jobs that were going to go, the kind of working class blue-collar jobs that were going to go, have already gone to low-cost countries. The problem is that there's just a sense of distrust about the promises that are associated with these trade deals in general. But, Kathy, tell me about the parts that really do...
1: Well, I know Elizabeth Warren is on this, um, but, like, I think the biggest thing I actually know about, because some of it has been leaked to, like, WikiLeaks, is the sort of transnational corporation power over small countries. And the example, and I don't remember the details of the example, but the example is, like, you know, cigarette companies suing small African countries for having rules against cigarettes in their own country for their own public health uh, improvements. And so the cigarette companies basically sued saying like, you are threatening our profit, <laughs> which, you know, it's like, well, you know, this is a country they should be able to defend their their own citizens for their own public health. My understanding is that the TPP, of course, I've not read it myself, the TPP actually sort of formalizes this power for transnational corporations like cigarette co- corporations to sue countries when their their profit is being threatened. And I, it's just, it's kind of outrageous. I mean, because we know. Uh, just to finish the point, we know that these kinds of things are about how much money do you have to litigate, and these small countries do not have the money to buy the lawyers to litigate, and it, so the the big corporations win.
2: Sure. Although I think the way that the, the way that these panels get set up is that. Um, It's run by several arbitrators that the countries choose, right? And so, Mm -hmm. um, for instance, I was was reading a piece, and, you know, you you should consider the source and everything because it was by the Peterson Institute, right? But the U.S. already has these mechanisms in place in a lot of its other free trade agreements. And the U.S. itself, at least, has never lost one. In other words, other companies have tried to bring these cases against the U.S. government to say that, sorry, but this new domestic policy or your courts or whatever go against um, the provisions of this other trade agreement. There have been, I think, 13 of them, and the U.S. has never lost one of them. Well, right? guess what? Yeah. So the United so I, States is rich, though, yeah. right? I'm not worried no, but, about the United States. So, right. No, and then what I'm saying is that this, this is one of those things where it's like you guys were saying earlier, this deal is almost perfectly calibrated to frustrate people like the three of us because- what we generally try to do is like analyze a topic and then arrive at an informed opinion it's hard to form an opinion when you can't i'm like the ambiguity guy here today when it's <laughs> hard to actually again quantify the thing right and and you don't know exactly what it's going to be and so this i think i think definitely falls under the cost side of this thing i will concede that cuz i'm i'm sort of narrowly in favor of this right but this part of it the isds thing I think Warren has some good points, but I also think she should be a little bit more transparent about the history of this thing, which is that usually these things don't get settled in favor of the companies, right? I think it's only something like about a third. It, so. it's, it's
0: pretty rare. And the idea of the ISDS, at least originally, was that-
1: Wait, you, you, you define ISDS. Sorry. The, uh, in, oh, so investor, these panels
0: that we're discussing are called investor state dispute investor settlement, state dispute settlement uh, panels. And the idea is that when a- Let's say if you're investing in a country and they take your factory, uh you're if you're a company or uh, the or the home country of a company, you need to be able to do something about that. So in international trade there are these arbitration panels you can go to. The thing that Elizabeth Warren is really upset about here is that typically with these, only another country can bring a case against you and from leaks, it seems like corporations can actually go in and uh, bring their own cases. So a cigarette company or um, a financial firm, if this is her worst nightmare, could come into the U.S. and say, you know, Dodd-Frank in some way violates some
2: aspect of the tra- uh, of the TPP.
1: And I, didn't actually Canada accuse Dodd-Frank? Yeah, Frank? they
2: said that the Volcker rule is in violation of NAFTA is what Canada is trying to argue. Right, yeah, so right. Yeah, I
0: mean, so it, so it can't happen. happen. Yeah, it's not totally crazy. I and again, it, it is very difficult because we don't actually know what's in. We don't know the specifics of what's in this trade deal, other than the early versions that were leaked. But to me, here is where my difficulty with it is. On the one hand, I
1: thought you were supposed to be pro.
0: To no, be I, I I think I am. I'm sort of. I'm edging pro. You're the I, neutral. I'm the pro guy. <laughs> so, the, 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 the pro, I'm mostly pro. The in the end, mo, people who have tried to simulate what this deal might basically look like. You know, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, for instance. They're guessing it will add to our GDP overall, and it's probably not going to ship many jobs overseas for Americans because, again, we've shipped those jobs overseas. Unfortunately, past trade deals have done their damage. And none of um, these countries is China. We should yeah. emphasize that again. There yes. is no more China. It's a, it, there's only one of them. Exactly. So we're going to get some – we're going to get a boost to our GDP probably. Um We are going to set some terms of trade in this region rather than letting China do it. And that's part of the political project here is kind of affirming these ties with countries like Vietnam rather than letting China set up their bilateral deals. The downside for me is there are all these things that are unrelated to what we typically think of free trade. Um, Essentially, the United States wants to export its really awful uh, intellectual property laws abroad. And that's the part that really... So they want to do things like extend, like make it more difficult for other countries to allow generic drug competition. Yes. They want to extend the terms of copyright internationally uh, to 70 years plus the author, whereas now I think the last big international uh, agreement said 50 years plus the life of the author. Um, and, you know, you might say, so what? We already have these awful rules here. Well, if they're written into international law, it means it'll be damn near impossible to ever get. Ever re- reverse them in the United States? Well, you're
1: really defending TPP. Well, no, but <laughs> so
0: here's here's why. In the end, I actually kind of do come down in favor of it. Is that it is probably good for trade overall. It's probably good for our economy overall realistically, I don't think we're ever going to reverse the length of copyright in this country. I don't think we're going to improve generic drug competition markedly in this country. On the other hand, it could do some concrete good in things like opening up Vietnam's economy and helping much the way free trade helped China's economy and helped bring 200 million people out of poverty. It could help Vietnam's economy bring a lot of their largely rural <laughs> residents, populists, into a better standard of living.
1: Um, at least As long as they never get sick and they smoke a lot.
2: I mean, well, okay. But by the way, we we should say there is maybe not a fully offsetting benefit to these protections, to the IP protections, but there is an offsetting benefit, which is that it does make other companies in other countries more likely to invest in these countries if they do have some of those protections. So there's an economic benefit there, too, even though I myself acknowledge that this also falls into the cost category. But for me, there's actually something... Where you can, In which you can go back to like the very basics of what it means to be like a globally integrated economy, right? I still think that in general is not just a good but a necessary thing in order to improve not just global productivity, but also the ability to generate higher living standards. And then it's on domestic policy, right? Not just in these other countries, but in the U.S. to make sure that whatever the fallout is, is mitigated by better... Countercyclical economic policy right if there are if there are workers who are losing their jobs then we need a stronger safety net and i'm all for that um but i don't think it's enough to say well there are segments of the population that are going to lose their jobs therefore this trade is a bad deal i think the right way to respond to that i think this falls under the neoliberal category i'm doing air quotes right now right where you go ahead and you open up the economy the global economy all right but you make damn sure okay that the people who live in some of these countries aren't going to be just sort of thrown by the wayside, which I think is one of the big criticisms, as you said earlier, of, um, of NAFTA and of some of these uh, these other trade deals.
1: And I, I also agree and that it, it you shouldn't— You're not allowed to agree with me.
2: Well, You're I, not allowed to agree.
0: I'm going to be fight.
2: honest. We, we failed
1: to deliver comment. on the promise okay. of this podcast. We thought we
0: disagreed a lot more than Well,
1: I, I'll agree on the one thing, and then I'll ask you a question. The thing I agree on is you don't criticize it only in terms of American jobs— but you also don't say it must be good because your American GDP is going to go up, right? I do care about us as a community in the entire world. So we we want other people to get jobs too as long as their working environment is reasonable, which is another question. Um, But my question is, Why does Obama like this so much? I honestly don't understand it, but I do know that he mentions China a lot. So can we just dig in a little bit?
0: I think it's very simple. He he believes that if the U.S. does not set the rules of trade in the Pacific, China is going to negotiate its own bilateral deals and has been attempting to with countries in Southeast Asia and whatnot. And I mean, there already are deals that exist in that part of the world. But they are going to be in the driver's seat. And he is worried about ceding that to China.
2: I think it's that simple. Yeah, I mean, there are labor and environmental protections in this deal. There's some dispute about how enforceable they'll be, but I think they're there. Um, In terms of why Obama likes it so much, I mean, Hard to get in his head, but could it be as simple as this is something that he knows he can get or thought he could or thought when he went into it, he thought he could get it without too much of a problem. And so it's something he believes in and it could be a political win yeah. for him as well. So, so you know, speaking
1: kind of-, of how likely it is, is it to actually get through? I guess it's, it's looking like it's going to get through the Senate.
0: Well, so they're right now trying to get something called fast track authority, which essentially means that once they do get a deal negotiated, they'll be guaranteed a up or down vote in the Senate just on 50 votes. They won't be a, a big opportunity for the Congress to amend the deal. And that's a big part of uh, kind of guaranteeing our trade, our potential trade partners that the deal they negotiate is what's actually going to be right. uh, kind of the finished product. We, unfortunately, we've spent a long time discussing TPP and there's really much more to discuss, even though no one knows what's in this deal. Um, <laughs> however, uh, we have... One more message from another wonderful sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Your company is only going to be as good as the people you hire. But when you're short-staffed, there's absolutely no time to deal with all those different job sites that are out there so that the perfect candidate will stumble upon it. That is until now. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com. You can post to more than 100 different job sites with a single click and have the highest chance of finding that perfect candidate. Plus, you can instantly be matched to a candidate from over 4 million resumes. That's right. I said 4 million. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ziprecruiter.com slash slate money. Again, that's ziprecruiter.com slash slate money. All right, uh, we've made our way through this less uh, fractious than promised uh, episode. Kathy, give me your number.
1: Uh, my number is twenty-five.
0: What is twenty-five?
1: I'll tell you. Twenty-five is uh, the number of dollars that Scott Walker, governor of Wisconsin, is proposing to tax bicycle sales. Because, because he's like, we don't want to encourage people to ride their
2: bicycle. A pagovian tax on bikes. That's. Awesome! what That's amazing. <laughs> um, there's
1: like there's some kind of like bill to to, to make more bike friendly roads, and he's also squashing that.
0: He's just so good at trolling liberals. I mean, he's so oh, it's just so, incredible. I, you have to admire his execution, like his certain art. Do the revenues? Of
2: taking... Yeah. Do the revenues from the bike tax go to like subsidizing carbon emissions? I'm sure What's they the... do. Well, it's sort of, of, course, of yeah, 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 it's sort free of free gas, free it,
0: gas for it, everyone. Well, it's sort of like how in Virginia <laughs> at one point they were uh, proposing. I can't remember this past, but taxing Priuses. Um, and the idea was that they weren't paying their share of uh, fuel taxes to upkeep the roads. But still, it was basically a, a gigantic... I mean, this is the same uh, week
1: that like, F-U-T-A. the Federal Highway Commission came out saying, like, we need better bike lanes that are protected from the main road so that we can encourage biking. Um, so anyway, it's just it's just nuts. That guy is, is just a piece of work. But he's a serious
0: presidential ca- uh, candidate. Stop saying that. He's a very serious candidate, in part because he's good at stuff We're like not this. on the
1: political gab fest here.
2: I,
0: I'm just saying. Um, Cardiff, what's your number? Uh, 56. And what is 56?
2: We are coming to the end of college graduation season, I believe. You've heard some of the commencement speeches. Well, 56% of all students who enroll either in a two- or four-year college program actually make it to graduation within six years. So if you're a listener and you just graduated, congratulations. There was actually a more than a 4-in-10 chance that you wouldn't make it. And even in these posh four-year private programs, uh, it's only 73%. So well done. Wow. You know, I think— I was going to say, I, I'm pretty
0: sure the 56 number is only for four-year schools. I think two-year schools, it's even lower. Maybe, are we going to oh, argue no, about this? This is
1: the final final argument that we were waiting for.
0: You know you know what? We will update just in
2: case I brought it with me according to the he National Student out. He literally whipped house. this out. 56% of oh. students earn degrees within six years. For the four-year uh, private nonprofit schools, it's 73%. For two-year public institutions, it's the lowest, and that's 40%. Jesus. Okay. Yeah, that's over at the Pew.
0: Okay. So, All right. I take it back. I had misremembered that data. Cardiff should... is
1: actually carrying I paper. I've no- I haven't seen paper. In... I,
0: I should have known better. I left it in the bag. I didn't want it to crinkle during the podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so My number is 100,000. It's $100,000. That's how much famed uh, New York artist Richard Prince is apparently going to be charging for printing out other people's Instagrams with his uh, comments oh, written man, at I the bottom. That. And then just putting them on a wall and he's going to sell those to art collectors. And Here, here's why this offends me.
1: It's um, sound, it well, offends me, no, too. No,
0: what else, so mean, but F- FYI. Here's the thing the people who whose instagrams he is stealing are are not losing anything of that their their instagrams were worthless until in, richard prince decided he was going to turn them into a quote work of art um the thing is he's is fam- and I should say he's famous for this idea called appropriation art which he his big for one of his big first things was literally taking pictures of the Marlboro Man ads that you find in magazines and then putting them up on a wall as a piece of art and there this was big in the 70s and 80s um and even sort of the 90s and he was a big part of this movement the thing that offends me is that there's just there really there's nothing interesting about this anymore it's just him doing the same old boring trick for 30 years now and literally he is scribbling his name on someone's instagram and selling it for $100,000 he asked
2: permission from these people before he doesn't he gets have it? to
0: there was a re- he recently had a big court case um well that's w- douchey. where he he <laughs>
2: It is douchey. I'm not saying. Cardiff, you nailed
1: it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah it, it's douchey. But it's not as if the, these people are being ripped off. I but think. the joke is on the people who pay that money. That is a joke. It's just boring and it upsets me that he can make money doing this. I'd um,
2: be upset if I walked into an art gallery and my likeness and comments were hanging up for everyone to see and I didn't have anything to do with it would I'd be, I'd be pissed off I mean, I guess but the
0: thing is your likeness maybe he'll he'll publicize you in some way and if well, if you're putting your face on Instagram you can't be on a public Instagram you you can't be that um, you know averse to attention it, again I get to choose the platform and I've chosen Instagram not <laughs> some douchebag yeah not this okay. th- yeah yeah I, I find the art boring uh, Cardiff finds it. Um, Just jerky, I think, Kathy just finds it repugnant all the way around. (laughs) Guys, uh, thank you uh, for joining us on this episode of Slate Money. And before we leave, I just want to put one last plug in, not for a sponsor. Slate has produced a really cool project. Uh, It's a podcast series, and of course, we know you love podcasts, about the history of slavery. Um, It's called a Slate Academy. Think of it as the best half-semester class you ever took. It's produced by Jamel Bowie and Rebecca Onion, and they're also interviewing leading academics and historians, looking at the, the real history of American slavery through individual. individual stories of actual slaves. I highly recommend it and I hope uh, you guys will check out the free episodes and maybe even sign up for Slate Plus. So that's it for us this week. Uh, Thank you for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, please subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store and if you like it, please leave a review. It helps convince everyone else to subscribe uh, when they hear the glowing things you have to say about us. Or, well, hopefully me things you have to say about us. Uh, you can also write to us at SlateMoney at Slate.com. Our producer for Slate Money this week is Stan Alcorn. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. He's the man to which we are thankful for all things. Uh, slate Money is part of the Panoply Network. And check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. All right. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money.
3: Buck Wolf here for the HuffPost Weird News Podcast, where we sit down with the biggest, fattest, hairiest, loudest, sexiest, and oddest people in the world. On our May 14th episode, we'll take you inside the sword-swallowing, fire-eating world of Sideshow, where being called a freak is an honor. Jump on the crazy train of life. Subscribe to the HuffPost Weird News Podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. You'll be partying like a porn star.